Do you think Paul dealt with suffering like this? You know, no overhead, no electronics or videos. He, you know, open up a Bible. I mean, they didn't even have that. So I think shipwrecks, I think we can do a little bit of electronic stuff instead of shipwrecks. But in, my, in the course of my life, I've had the, the great opportunity to travel to some amazing places. Uh, Canada, uh, Jamaica, France, Greece, Russia. I, I love to travel. And when I was in Paris, France, I saw the Notre Dame Cathedral. Notre Dame was among the first buildings in the world to use flying buttresses. Uh, what are those? It's those long stone arches that support exterior walls, and maybe you can picture them at Notre Dame. Flying buttresses help uphold the grandeur of Notre Dame, and that's what people love to see. I also traveled to Greece, uh, Athens, Paros, Mykonos, and Santorini, amazing places, and while I was in Athens, I hiked the Acropolis. An incredible experience. I, I actually saw the Parthenon, which was crazy, and, and that's the uh, temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Athena. It was there over 400 years before Christ. 46 outer pillars and 23 il- inner pillars once upheld this soaring structure of the Parthenon, which contained the almost 40-foot idol Athena. The pillars help uphold the grandeur of the Parthenon. What do you think it means that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth? Paul borrowed from Greek architecture to make a point about local churches. Famed evangelical theologian John Stott, you might recognize his name, summarized Paul's point like this. The purpose of pillars is not only to hold the roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. Just so, the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift the building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth every day. People around us ignore the truth of Christ in order to live in the delusion of their own independence, vanity, and self-indulgence. People are blind to the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Oh, how the world needs the local church to hold up the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ for them to see. Sadly, many local churches are void of the powerful presence of God because years ago they stopped upholding the truth. In their drift from Scripture, they have forgotten how to act in the household of God. And so they busy themselves with empty religious activity without ever realizing God is gone. God is gone in their midst. Local churches must uphold the truth. That is their purpose, that is their life, that is their heartbeat. So here's where I'm headed this morning. As local churches uphold the truth of the gospel for the world to see, the gospel creates godliness in them, which showcases the powerful presence of God. God's presence in local churches is powerful. Unlike any other place on earth, and local churches were the focus of Paul's ministry, Paul devoted himself to the preaching and teaching of the truth for the growth and godliness of local churches. He gave his life to that. Preach and teach ter- uh, truth so that 
the local church can grow in godliness. Consider who received Paul's writings. The church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, the church in Thessalonica, Timothy, and the church in Ephesus, Titus, and the church in Crete. Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the house church in Colossae. Paul was all about the growth and godliness of local churches. Why did Paul sacrifice so much for local churches? Because like nothing else in the world, local churches are the dwelling place of the living God. This is why corporate worship is so exceptionally powerful. The living God is there. And the people who really understand this, the people that really get what's going on, like Paul, long for corporate worship precisely because they encounter God in a unique and in a powerful way through the word and through the sacraments. It leaves us wondering why any Christian would purposefully disregard the powerful presence and provision of God in corporate worship. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, Paul said this, Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, why would Paul feel anxiety for all the local churches? Because he was deeply invested in the growth and godliness of those local churches. But why? Why? Because he knew the beauty, he knew the power of the living God at work in and through local churches which uphold the truth. Paul wrote impassioned and heartfelt letters to local churches in many cities because he believed that the gospel shaped those Christian communities, that the glory of God was there, that it would be manifest in them for the world to see. You got to understand why 1 Timothy is so important for us, for our church. If we are transformed by this book, The gospel will strengthen us to uphold the beautiful truth of Christ. And in doing that, people are going to see in us the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, can you hear Paul's heart for the church of Ephesus in verses 14 and 15? I hope to come to you. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know How one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Even if Paul couldn't arrive, even if he couldn't get there, even if he had to delay, he wanted to make sure that this local church had the word of God so that they knew how to conduct themselves in the household of God, the church of the living God. It was important for them, really important for them, to see how the gospel shapes a local church, their church. And notice that Paul said, ought to behave. The word ought is important. It it meant the, the Ephesians were obligated by God to do everything that Paul wrote in the book, in his letter, precisely because the Father, the glorious Father, the beloved Father, wanted it done that way, for His glory, for their good Paul mixed doctrine and application throughout this book. Why? Because the gospel produces conduct fitting the glory of God. Right doctrine is inseparable from right living. Or you could say it this way, orthodoxy is inseparable from orthopraxy. When 
when the gospel is the center of church life, it then shapes church life. Paul's commands, they flow out of the gospel. We must first, and please listen closely to this because this is very important for how you understand all of Christianity. We must first understand what God has done for us through Christ. Receive all of that by faith. Be fundamentally transformed by Christ. And then, because of who we are in Christ, the gospel leads us to our ever-increasing godliness. Our lives flow out of who God has made us in Christ. So when we understand that in Christ we are adopted children of God, then we are free to live like it in the house. Hold of God in the family of God. And Paul was telling Timothy this because Timothy was a pastor and he was charged with helping the people of God in Ephesus apply the gospel to church life. So gospel-centered leadership and oversight is central to the growth and godliness of a local church. And we've seen that in chapter three. Paul understood what a local church really is And that's why he devoted his life to local churches. So my question is, do you know what a local church is? A local church is the household of God. The household of God. Now, household could mean family unit, or it could mean actual structure, a house structure, or maybe both. But either way, they are closely associated meanings in Scripture. A household included family. There are servants and then sometimes extended family that were staying Uh, and living all together. And this meaning of household uh, is throughout Scripture. Paul used household this way twice before in chapter 3 in regards to an overseer being able to manage his household well. The household of God is God's family. God is the loving Father. Jesus Christ is the eternally begotten Son. The Father pursues children of wrath and through His only Son adopts them into His household. The church, Paul told the Ephesians in his earlier letter, God has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, you could say, and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. A local church is an expression of, the expression of, the family of God. The other possible meaning is that God's people are the house structure in which God dwells. As he saves people, he is assembling them into a group, into groups all over the world in which he dwells, in which he lives. Again, Paul told the Ephesians in his earlier letter that they are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in which the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Now God dwells in each individual believer. Okay, so he's in you. But Scripture emphasizes that it is when We gather and worship as the children of God that we are the household of God or the holy temple in the Lord or the dwelling place of God. The living God's presence, and you have to understand this, is especially powerful in the gathering of the local church. 
Now, the preposition in, in this passage, emphasizes this. In the household of God. To behave in the household of God assumes Christians are assembled together. The corporate nature of the Christian faith is obvious in Scripture. It's everywhere. Dr. Ligon Duncan is a well-respected scholar and author, and he explained it like this. Listen carefully. Wherever the people of God are gathered, the local congregation of believers assembled, whether it's in a beautiful sanctuary or whether it's in a parking lot or whether it's on a hillside or whether it's in a valley, there, when the people of God are gathered on the Lord's day to meet Him, they are God's house. Yes, think of it. God is in the house. He's in the house. And as we assemble for worship, we are God's house. And, and God's rules for His house, they're really good for everybody in His household. He, he has a way He wants to run His house. And He's very effective at doing that. Hence the importance of 1 Timothy. A local church is more. A local church belongs to the living God. Belongs to the living God. Notice in verse 15 that the household of God is the church of the living God. Ecclesia or church refers to the assembly of believers. And on this side of heaven, that assembly of believers is the local church. The local church. These assemblies, these congregations belong to the living God. The family is his. The house is his. And he is alive in his family. He is alive in his house. He's not dead like the idols of false religion. There are many dead houses of worship precisely because the living God is not there. The family of God is not there. But God is living here. He is here in Jerusalem church. He is alive right now. He is dwelling with us. Can you sense the presence of the living God? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. Together we belong to God and are the temple in which God lives. From a craftsman's hand or the factory floor, the statue is shipped, delivered, and bowed to in worship, and it's dead. It's dead. Living beings falling in worship before dead idols. How utterly foolish and ineffectual. How can anyone have relationship with something dead? How reckless to thirst for dead things when there is a God who lives and acts for his people. The living God loves his people, protects his people, provides for his people, leads his people, and communicates with his people. That is desirable. That is what we want. We want God. The sons of Korah sang because they understood this as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Don't you long for the living God? A God who communes with you? There's a relationship. 
Think about it. Every Sunday you have the opportunity to join corporate worship and encounter the presence of the living God. Who would want to miss the presence of the living God? I think we all underestimate what happens in these gatherings. I think we all do. Every week during our gathering, we may justify our apathy or boredom a thousand different ways, but the reality is that corporate worship is not more precious and powerful for us because we have a small view of the living God and how, have low expectations of what the living God can do and is doing in our midst. He is here, friends, to satisfy our deepest longings with the presence of himself, to strengthen us for 10,000 different sufferings through his word, to, to assure us in moments of incredible and desperate times of weakness and failure with his sacraments. We, we, we prioritize other things, We find ourselves distracted and preoccupied in worship because we do not fully understand or realize that we belong to a living God who is alive in our gatherings, pouring out his grace and blessing and favor upon us as we commune with him and his family. When we know that, and taste the presence and power of God in corporate worship, well, you know what happens? We want more. We naturally want more. We have a taste for it, and we say, man, when I go, it, it, it just, it's not the same. I want to get back there. I want God to be with me. We want more. and We want to be in the household of God to meet the living God through Jesus Christ. Now, the NFL may foolishly think it owns Sundays, all right? But there is no power in their empty stadiums of worship. And I'm not hating on football. Go Steelers. Come on. But they're empty and powerful churches. In Ephesus, there was a, there was a temple of the goddess Artemis or Diana It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, 450 feet long, 225 feet wide, 60 feet high with more than 127 towering pillars. It was amazing, yet there was no life in it. Dead. Dead. Because the family of God was not meeting with their father in that place. Dr. Philip Ryken said this, the goddess in the temple was nothing more than a dead idol. By contrast, Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians that the church of Jesus Christ is the real temple. The living God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. He lives among his people, especially in their public worship. Whenever Christians gather for prayer and praise, for word and sacrament, God takes up residence among them. To put it in the vernacular, God is in the house. God is in the house. What an amazing thought. And and as God fills the house of his people, he strengthens them to do what no other group on planet earth can do. A local church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Think think of the flying buttresses of Notre Dame and the great pillars of the Parthenon. It's not that truth is weak and it needs our help to uphold it. It doesn't need our support. It's not that the church is the foundation 
of the truth in the sense that we determine truth or that the organized church or church history is an equal authority to the truth as Roman Catholicism falsely postulates, but rather local churches exist all around the world to hold high the truth of the gospel so that the world can behold its grandeur. John MacArthur very helpfully noted the church has the stewardship of Scripture, the duty to guard it as the most precious possession on earth. Churches that tamper with, misrepresent, depreciate, relegate to secondary place, or abandon biblical truth destroy their only reason for existing and experience impotence and judgment. Have you ever wondered why so many local churches are dying? There's tons dying a year, closing up. I think 3,500 to 4,000 churches a year. Why are so many dying? Because they abandoned their responsibility to hold the truth of the gospel high for the world to see. Liberalism is killing churches because people are abandoning the truth. They upheld something else and they died. The tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. 2,722 feet high. That's over a half a mile high. It is an amazing building. You really should Google it. it. When you look at it, it almost looks fake. Like it is an incredible structure. And beneath that beautifully imposing structure are 192 piles or underground concrete and steel pillars. They're buried around 164 feet deep. Why are they there? to make sure that everybody sees the glory and grandeur of the Burj Khalifa, the building above. Local churches exist to uphold the truth of the gospel for the world to see. And all that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy is aimed at helping local churches do just that. Everything written in 1 Timothy is critical for local churches in their role of displaying the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Preaching sound doctrine upholds the truth. Baptism and the Lord's Supper uphold the truth. Confronting false teachers upholds the truth. Church discipline upholds the truth. Evangelistic praying upholds the truth. Proper roles for men and women uphold the truth. Biblical oversight of qualified and called elders upholds the truth. The care and servanthood of qualified and called deacons upholds the truth. You you get the idea as we've been going through this Each of us plays a role in all of us upholding the truth together as a local church. Now, if the stones of the flying buttresses of Notre Dame are scattered about Paris, they still might have some purpose, okay? But but when they are assembled together, they are powerful to uphold the grandeur of the cathedral, Now, I'll close this point with another great quote from Dr. Ligon Duncan, and listen closely. It's a long quote, but it's very, very helpful, so I want you to get this. Paul is saying that the local church is the place that God has appointed to be essential to the propagation and protection of the truth in the world. Paul's saying there can be no lone ranger Christianity. You can't be off on your own. You, Jesus, and your Bible... And expect for the truth to prosper in your life. We need one another as believers. We need one another as encouragement. We need to see one another's lives 
We need to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of other believers to encourage us to love and good deeds. We need to be saying the word to one another, memorizing the word with one another, hearing the word of God together, serving the word of God together. Together, the church serves as the pillar and support of the truth in the sense that it is essential. It is God's essential vehicle for evangelism, for discipleship, for missions, for the defense of the faith. Paul is, joint, is just pointing out that the church is absolutely crucial. It is vital in preserving and propagating the gospel. It is the local church. Paul is saying where God meets especially with his people in the new covenant era and it is the local church which is the essential instrument through which God propagates his truth. Nailed it. Nailed it. And the effect of upholding the truth in the local church is wonderful, unbelievable. The gospel alone creates growth and godliness in a local church. The gospel alone does that. Look for a moment at verse 16. Paul used the phrase mystery of godliness. What does that mean? Well, I'm not 100% sure. Isn't that great when the pastor doesn't know? But I think... That the mystery of godliness, as I study this, refers to Jesus Christ. And then the godliness that he produces by grace in God's people. So let me explain that. In 1 Timothy 3.9, Paul referred to deacons upholding the mystery of the faith. The mystery refers to the doctrine of the Christian faith, the content, the faith. And then the word eusebia, or godliness, appears in the New Testament 15 times, eight of which Paul uses here in 1 Timothy. Here's what I think godliness means. Godliness is believing the right things, which results in doing the right things. Or maybe a better way to say it is like this. Godliness is godly identity demonstrated through godly activity. The person and work of Jesus Christ is the quintessential illustration of godliness. He is the mystery of godliness revealed. Paul said that's a great and uncontestable mystery. When he said great, the word is mega. It's a mega mystery. I mean, this is a big mystery. And when Paul says we confess, he means the mystery is an uncontestable reality. It is. It's obvious now. The mystery has been revealed. The mystery of godliness has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To strengthen this view, right after Paul used the phrase mystery of godliness, he said he was manifest in the flesh. And another way to translate that in the Greek would be, would be like this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness who was manifested in the flesh. Many scholars understand verse 16 to be an early Christian hymn um, that summarizes the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness is revealed in the gospel, which is the truth that local churches are to uphold. And this gospel truth upheld and believed in a local church is what produces godliness in that church, in those people. How, how are sinners transformed from ungodliness to godliness. How does that happen? That is an amazing thing. Well, it is a mystery, and it's unveiled and explained in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which verse 16 summarizes. 
Jesus makes it happen by his power. Paul has just said that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of what? The truth. The truth. Then in verse 16, Paul summarized the core of the truth that the church upholds and in which the church finds godliness. So number one, he was manifested in the flesh. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, became human, and we see the fullness of God in the man, Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The mystery of godliness was manifested in human flesh. Number two, He was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness by the Spirit. The Spirit's power in Christ's righteousness vindicated the identity of Jesus. But even more, when the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, the Spirit vindicated the true identity of Jesus Christ as God's Son and as His Messiah. His resurrection proves everything about Him. Amazing. Romans 1, 3, and 4 confirm this very thought. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit's resurrection proves that Christ is everything that He said He he is. Three, He was seen by angels Angels were at the scene of the resurrection. Angels watched with the disciples as Jesus ascended into heaven. The resurrection is corroborated by angels. That is amazing. But there's another fascinating possibility here that a lot of scholars uh, dismiss. The word for angels is also commonly used simply of messengers. Paul could be referring here to the apostles who were messengers of the gospel, sent out to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not only have angels seen, but human beings, the apostles, have seen the risen Christ. They have validated and authenticated that it is true. Whatever Paul meant here, either way you go, this is still a wonderfully faith-building passage of Scripture. Number four, he was proclaimed among the nations. The apostles took the good news of eternal life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and preached it to the nations. They announced it. They advertised it. They got the word out about what happened. They they gave their lives for it. And it began in Jerusalem, and it spread to Judea and Samaria, and it spread to the ends of the earth. Paul devoted his life to this ever since. Think about this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ ever since that point. The gospel has been preached among the nations. And think of it. The gospel was launched from Jerusalem, accelerated through the ages to land right here. Local churches are still proclaiming the gospel among the nations. We're doing it right now. Five He was believed on in the world. As the gospel advanced among the nations through preaching, many people trusted in Jesus. Read the book of Acts and you'll see the amazing power of the gospel spreading throughout the world, producing believers all across the world. It's still happening. Look around you in this room. The gospel works right here is evidence that the preaching of the gospel works because in this room in the United States of America, in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, a long way from Jerusalem, the gospel came and it changed your life and it changed my life. 
We are part of the fulfillment of verse 16. Number six, he was taken up in glory. Now, at this point, Paul seems to be backtracking a little bit to the ascension of Christ, and it, and it may seem out of order for us, but I think it still works here. Jesus was taken up into glory to sit at the Father's right hand in power and majesty and glory. He was glorified as Lord. He was put up as Lord, and his preeminence is over all things. And perhaps this alludes a little bit, points towards the future of his glorious return. In a few short lines, Paul gave us the gospel. Jesus Christ is the mystery of godliness, revealed in a crucified and risen Lord. So how can you tell if God is in the house? How can you tell? I mean, we have visitors here. How can you tell God's here? You know, how, how do you know that God is present in a local church? All of us probably have experienced other churches. How do you know that God is at work in those churches or he's not at work in those churches? It's actually quite simple, my friends. That church will uphold and champion the gospel, which will be actively producing godliness in that church. The living God will be in that church working to conform his people to the image of Christ to godliness, if a church proclaims the truth but isn't being transformed into the likeness of Christ, there's a huge problem in that church. Truth and transformation both display the powerful presence of God. You have to look at both. And I understand it's messy business because, you know, when you look at me, you look at each other, you're like, oh, that's not conforming to Christ and it's ugly. Yeah, it is. But... God can be palpable in a place that through his word and sacraments, we are growing and conforming and more and more people are just saying, I'm getting more serious about my faith. Like, this is huge for me. I need this. I'm a pastor. I have to be here. But if I was not a pastor, I would be here. Maybe not here. I don't know where I'd be living if I'm not a pastor. But I'd be in church. I need it. I need what I preach. I want to feel the presence of God. I need to know that God is with me, strengthening me. Life is hard. There's terrible things happening. I'm too weak. I'm too scared. I'm too fearful of what happens. I have too much anxiety. I don't look to the cross enough. I need the presence of God, and so do you. Don't you want the presence of God? So in me, I hope you see a transformation of godliness that says, look at that wreck of a man being transformed into the image of Christ. That, that sermon that he preached, it hit me. It was powerful. That's God. That's not him. He's just a tool that God's using. Can you believe that he actually spoke gently to me this time and he didn't yell at me? That's God. And you look at each other and you say, man, a year ago, you were not the same dude. You've grown, man. I see Jesus. That's the presence of God. We need truth and we need transformation. We're not going through the motions. I don't want to show up to go through the motions. If you're here and you're just like, whatever, I mean, here a little bit, go home. Maybe consider doing something else. It's got to transform you. You must be like Jesus. And so as, as the presence of God is working through the word and sacraments to take us there, that's a beautiful transformation that's still happening in you and in me. 
Now, I don't think anybody should not come just because God's not worthy. No, be here because this is where God is who will change your heart to make you want to be like Jesus. So how about we get a lot of people from the community that give no rip about God and get them in here to the presence of God to encounter him. Brothers and sisters, is our church a strong pillar and a buttress for the truth? Is the living God here? Is the gospel producing greater godliness in each of us? Are we helping one another build up so that we can better support this glorious truth of Jesus Christ? And I know that each of us falls short drastically of the glory of God. We all struggle deeply with sin, me included, but I also know that the living God is here and he is meeting with us in our weakness and he is giving us incredible and marvelous grace. He's working in this church. The living God shows up here every week to be with you, to love you, to care for you, to feed you, to strengthen you, to help you, to lead you, to talk to you. He is producing beautiful things in us, in this church. Can you see them? Can we celebrate what God is doing? Are you grateful? And is that gratefulness, that gratitude deep within you just, oh, I just want more, just want to experience God? Does it excite you to know that God will meet us, meet you as you worship with your brothers and sisters, and that God will show up to do more in your life? As we uphold the truth of the gospel together for the world to see, the gospel will continue to create godliness in us. And your godliness and my godliness is going to showcase the powerful presence of God. So nothing will satisfy you more than the powerful presence of God with you. So let us uphold the truth together, Jerusalem Church. Let us put it up there. Do what we can together to to lean up against that truth, to hold it up for the world to see as beautiful so that they can see Jesus. See Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this incredible morning that you are here with us. God, the technology doesn't work, but who gives a rip? You're here. And we love you. We don't need technology. We don't need pews. We don't need this building. We could be sitting in the rain and you could be with us in incredible power and glory. God, soon enough we're going to be downstairs, not up here, because there's going to be a project What if the most powerful presence of God will be felt down there? To maybe show us something very graciously as a church, that it's not in the building, it's in the presence of God in his people. So God, I pray that you use the common, whenever it happens, whenever they break ground, that you would use the times in the basement to gloriously remind us of your powerful presence detached from any dead building that we as the people of God would come together and expect that you will be with us working in amazing ways to transform us into the image of Christ for your glory and our greatest joy and pleasure in you. Thank you, God, for meeting with us. You should have destroyed us, but instead you manifested your great mercy and grace through Christ, and you've met with us. You've loved us. You've fed us. You've nourished us. You've cared for us. You've picked us up when we have been weak and brokenhearted. You've given us a word of truth when we most needed it. You are so kind. Thank you, Father, for being in your family, that you're not a detached father. Some of us have had fathers that, man, they just didn't get it. Some of us have had fathers who showed us God, 
showed us you. Regardless, God, you're the perfect father who loves your family. You love your kids. We've been adopted into your family because you wanted us. And you wanted to pour out blessing on us. And you're doing that through local churches. I pray that you will put in the heart of each person here a fierce desire for family. And what I mean by that is the household of God, the local church. God put that within us for your glory. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.